Good morning. All right, white folks. I don't ask for much. Uh, I'm not asking for reparations. I'm not asking for you to end the lingering effects of racism. I'm not even asking you to check your privilege. But when I'm at a park, please, the only thing I ask is that you put your dog on a leash. That's all I ask, right? Put your dog on a leash. I was up at Mount Tabor many months ago, and Mount Tabor was one of those, if you've ever been to Portland, Mount Tabor is a beautiful park, and they've got great stairs to run, and I was running the stairs at Mount Tabor, and, uh, and uh, there was a dog, a pit bull, not on a leash, go figure, running full speed at me. And the last thing you want to hear is somebody say, don't worry, he's safe. No, he say, say, he's friendly. And he comes barreling at me, and finally he gets right up on me. I'm terrified. Uh, and then he starts licking my leg. <laughs> and as he licks my leg, on the one hand, um, he feels safe, but on the other, I understand that this dog could snap and devour me. <laughs> and I realize that Often when you enter this relationship with God, that God is the same way, that he's a loving God, but he's not a safe God. He's not a safe God. He'll turn your world upside down because he thinks his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our ways. He is counterintuitive to everything that you think and know about life and even your faith. Jesus is always flipping it on its head. And that's what we're going to see here in this passage, a, a God that is not safe and a God that calls us into mission. Now, before I jump into Luke chapter 10, it's interesting how Luke chapter 9 ends. It ends where Jesus is walking along the road and says to a man, um, uh, or I'm sorry, as they were walking along the road, a man says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And he said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, but the first let me go and go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, no one has put his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. And so here's Jesus talking about the kingdom of God and what it means to give your life for it, right? To live in mission with Jesus and two invitations that he gives these two people. And one wants to go bury their parent. The other wants to go visit their family for the last time. And Jesus said, neither of you are fit for the kingdom of God, because the kingdom, anytime Jesus talks about a parable of the kingdom, he always says the kingdom of God is. He never says the kingdom of God is this, right? Because the kingdom takes on all kinds of different shapes and form, and it looks different for all of us, whether you're black, white, whether you come from an upperly mobile or lower socioeconomic background, the kingdom of God looks different for all of us, but there's one common denominator that distills the kingdom down to one thing, and that is, is that God always causes his people to live in mission. 
And whatever that mission is requires that we are willing to live counterintuitive and have our worlds flipped upside down. And that's what we see here when we step into this passage in Luke chapter 10. What does it mean to live in mission? What does it mean to jump in God's world and journey with him? And we're going to see what that means. So are you with me this morning? Y'all ready for the ride? I did something that I normally never do. Usually if I go speak somewhere, I pull out a sermon out of my file cabinet, dust it off, memorize it, and then go speak because I have so much to do at my home. I'm preaching. I'm mentoring, doing a ton of stuff. But this time I decided I was going to try and preach something new for y'all. So we're going to do it this morning. Now look with me here. Well, let's pray. Jesus, thank you today. Thank you for Ben. Thank you for this people. Thank you for Pete and his leadership team. Thank you uh, for the opportunity to come and share the good news of the gospel here. Uh, we are family. Uh, regardless of our race, culture, whatever, God, we, we are the body of Christ, and it is different. And Lord, we pray that you would invite us, each of us, into this journey, including myself, as we wrestle our way through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, look with me here. From Luke 1 to Luke 9 is the sayings of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. From Luke 10 to 24 is the doings of Jesus. So we're literally at a critical, critical point in Luke's gospel. And what Luke wants us to understand is, is if you've ever read the, Luke, uh, the book of Luke, what Luke does is, is that he, he organizes the stories, the teachings, the doings of Jesus in a way to tell the message, the mission of who he is, right? He re-theologizes what it means to live in this kind of mission. What we're going to see right here, he starts right here in verse 1. He says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place and wherever he was about to go. He says, after this. After what? Well, Jesus is in Galilee. And where is Jesus going? He's going to Jerusalem. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because when Jesus leaves Galilee and he's en route to Jerusalem, what in the world is going to happen when he gets there? Now, mind you, he's talking this framed all into the kingdom of God. I'll tell you exactly what's going on. Jesus is leaving Galilee. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's talking about the kingdom of God, and he's describing what it's like. And the first thing he wants his disciples to understand is, is that when Jesus is going to Jerusalem from Galilee, he wants them to understand that the way of discipleship and the way to live in mission is the way of death. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to be crucified. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to have his own life taken from him. And if you really want to serve Jesus and literally live upside down, the way of discipleship and to live for Christ means that we must die to ourselves. In a hundred different ways that I will try and illustrate here this morning. Now, one of the easiest ways, this is a lob for a dunk, if you read the text and you're paying attention, 
one of the easiest things that he's trying to show you here is, is that he's in Galilee after this, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. But guess what's between Galilee and Jerusalem that they have to go through? Samaria. And most Gentile or Jewish or Hellenized Jewish folks had no dealings with uh, 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 Samaritans. And so when Jesus said the way of death is to put you in some tough terrain culturally, which means you're going to have to connect with people that don't think like you, act like you, don't vote like you, right? That don't do life like you. If you really want to die, make it simple, not to say that you guys are going to go to a physical cross and die, but one of the easiest ways to die is to go engage a Hispanic, to go engage an African-American, to go engage somebody completely different than you, to do what I and my wife have to do for the last 28 years is be the lone minority person in a predominantly white church and sit under white leadership. You know how hard that is? How many of you guys doing that in a black or Latino church? Not many. And that's not here to indict you, but what I'm saying is the way of the cross is that God causes us to live upside down culturally. And that's one of the easiest lives for us to die. Who sits at our table? Who do we do life with? Are we in an echo chamber? And notice in this passage, it doesn't even take much. He said in verse 1, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others. So this is after the 12, which means everybody got to get in the action, not just the 12. It's not just the faithful few. It's not 20% of the people doing 100% of the work. It's everybody engaged in this mission. And he said, after the Lord had appointed 72 others, he sent them out two by two. Right? So here they are in Galilee. They got to go to Jerusalem. And in between Galilee and Jerusalem is Samaria. And he sends these 70, some argue 72, some say 70, but whatever. The point is, is that they have to go into Samaria, where most Jews and other Gentiles would never step foot into. And Jesus causes them into it, but he causes them into it two by two. So you do the math. If they have to go into every town, every city, every village, two by two, how many cities is it probably? 35? So my question is, only two people per city? So my question for all of us in this morning, can two people really change Bend? Can two, two people really can go into Primeville and change Primeville? Can two people, that's it, Jesus? You going to send into Madras two people? It doesn't take much to live in mission. It doesn't take much to live upside down. In fact, Luke, I mean, everything is divested here. Look at verse 4. It says, do not even take a purse or bag, sandals. Don't even greet anyone on the road. I mean, how much can a person be stripped He said, look, not only am I calling two to a city, but I'm asking you to go to that city with nothing. If you really want to live in mission. Now, this is beautiful to me because I hope you guys understand 
This year, I'm a girls basketball coach at Benson. There are two inner city schools in Portland, Jefferson High School and, and Benson. And those schools are predominantly African-American school, uh, schools. When I moved back from LA, I've been there about 23 years in Portland, but I went back to LA, planted a church for eight years, failed, right? Like, did everything that I would tell a church planner not to do, came back to Portland with my tail between my legs, trying to figure out what the next move was, got hired by Imago Day. Pastor Rick gave me six months to collect a paycheck, do nothing but just try and figure out what God was doing in the city with me. And I get a call literally months into being there from Curtis Wilson, the principal at Benson, who was a friend of mine who invited and called me and said, hey, we're trying to get our sports programs resurrected because all of the sports programs at Benson struggled. In fact, every four-year cycle, they're talking about getting, either getting rid of Benson as a school or getting rid of the sports program or both. So he said, man, you've been coaching for a long time. We just need you to come here for a year. Would you come meet me in my office and talk about being the head varsity basketball coach? I got excited. I played ball. This makes sense. I get to his office. But what he didn't tell me was, was that he wasn't asking me to be the boys' coach. He was asking me to be the girls' coach. And outside of my daughter at the park, I'd never really coached girls. So I had to pray about that because I had never been involved in girls' sports on that level ever. And then I meet with Pastor Rick because the principal said, look, I'm going to give you seven days to think about this. I have 15 other applicants, but we feel like you're the guy. Go pray about it because he's a believer and get back to me. So I go meet with Rick, and I said, man, I'm a little confused. He kind of suckered me, brought me into his office, made me think that I was going to be coaching the boys. But then he flips it and says, can you coach the girls? And Rick says something powerful. He goes, the mission has not changed, Eric, only the gender. It was like a sword right through my heart. So I took the job. First year, we lost six times by 60 points. You can Google the mercy rule. There's an article in the Oregonian right now written about us, literally called uh, the mercy rule. Is it time to give Benson a break? That's how bad we got beat my first year. Second year, we improved. Third year, we got better. And last year, we miraculously got to the state tournament, upset the number two, then upset the number three, and lost in the championship game. Hadn't been there in 24 years. 24 years. And I remember on Facebook, sort of my tribute to the girls for the amazing accomplishment that we did. What an amazing feat to even get to the state tournament, much less get to the state championship game. And I'm writing this, and I said, it's amazing, because our girls were crestfallen when we lost in the state championship game. And I went into the locker room and they're crying. I'm like, you got nothing to be ashamed of. Do you understand you put a whole black community on your back? Man, you were the hit this whole week. Man, you did some things that were amazing. So as I'm writing on Facebook, just kind of put a picture of the team and kind of gave the girls a tribute. I said, just think, ladies, you guys were the only school that had literally free and reduced lunch kids in the tournament. 
81% of your school was free and reduced lunch. A third of our program could only play in track shoes. We had a number of girls who couldn't even come out because they couldn't afford the $35 participation fee. And I said, here we are, a third of y'all track shoes. The only school with the lowest en enrollment, 81% free and reduced lunch, and you got to the state championship game. Can God really do something with only two? Of course, on Facebook, I started getting private messages. Everybody saying, I want to pay the participation fee. I want to start buying them Nikes. I want to... And I felt a little weird about it because I'm like, everything that got us there seems so kingdom. Seems so counterintuitive. The fact that we had no resources became the resource itself. <laughs> Are you following me this morning? I'm just saying it doesn't take much. My pastor, Rick McKinley, started Advent Conspiracy. That thing is only $40,000 a year. One staff person has gone to 20 countries and tens of millions of people now participate in the Advent Conspiracy. I can think of two, four African-American women who are in Portland who said, who had a dream, let's start in America's whitest city, let's start a culturally responsive educational uh, charter school for black and brown kids that is, has a multicultural curriculum that they can every day walk into class and read history and do work that's specific to who they are racially and ethnically. They got that thing off the ground. Four moms got that school off the ground. It is blowing up in Portland. Can two change your city? got a bunch of points. The first point is, is that being in mission doesn't take much at all, at all. Two, mission ain't the material you bring. Mission is the person you bring. Witnessing is witnessing. That's all it is. Witnessing is witnessing. It's just being present in people's life. It's just showing up and allowing it to go where it go, allowing it to do what it do. It's being there. It's unbusying yourself. It's dying to self. It's saying, I'm willing to live upside down. I won't be a slave to my schedule, my business, my resources, and all the other stuff that our American way of life demands of us so that I can show up and be present and available in people's life right here in bed. I choose relationship over schedule. Three, mission is about sending. Look with me here. Verse two, he told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Let me read that again. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into this harvest field. Notice, Jesus said pray for the harvest. Pray for the harvest. 
Pray how? Pray for more workers? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is just pray for the workers that are, that are out there that they would be living in mission. Don't pray for more workers. Just pray that the workers that are out there would go out and do the work. It's that simple. It's not that complicated. Doesn't take a rocket scientist. Get out there and get busy. He said he told the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send them out. Now, what's interesting about being sent, there's two Greek words. There's apostello, which means one that carries a message or an ambassador to proclaim a message who represent the kingdom of God. And then there's another Greek word called ekbalo, which in this context is the word that Luke uses. And what ekbalo means is to drive out or to cast or thrust something out. And it's used when Jesus drives out the money changers in the temple. And this tells me a little bit about how Jesus sends us all out. It gets to this sort of conflict in our world today. And I do not get why we Christians can't live in this kind of tension. Because Ekbalo isn't just about being sent out to preach the gospel. That's, that's apostello. Ekbalo is about confronting systems that damage and hurt people. It's subverting. It's interrupting systems. And so when God calls us out, he puts the gospel beautifully together. On the one hand, we to get out there and preach the gospel and see people get saved and let them know about the good news of Jesus. And yet, on the other hand, we are to go and to confront social injustice and things that harm communities and disenfranchise other people. It's the ability to put the theology of Tim Tebow together with the theology of Colin Kaepernick. Tebow, born in a Presbyterian home, homeschooled. I met the guy one time in Florida. Nice guy. Nice pecs. <laughs> Parents are missionaries. I've never met Colin Kaepernick, but raised in a Christian home, was in a Methodist, was baptized, and was in part of some of the Christian clubs at his college. And yet for some of us, we like to be in these silos. I'm about Tebow, and I'm anti-Kaepernick, or I'm all about Kaepernick, but I'm anti-Tebow. And let me tell you, the beauty of the gospel is, is that it puts both these things together, and it refuses you to live in any of those categories. The gospel requires us to live different and distinct and to live nuanced. And if there's anybody that knows how to put this or should know how to put this together, it's Christianity when it's lived out well. It knows that when you go out, you do some apostello work and yet you do some ekbalo work. It's both. Excuse me. Mission means and being in step with the kingdom of God means you got to become a lamb. Look with me. 
Go, verse 3, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. What's a lamb? A lamb is an animal that's ignorant. They're vulnerable. They're powerless. They're lovable. Do you see there's a way in which we are to live in mission and serve a community? That's why Jesus, that's why Luke says, you know, he's talking about Jesus and he said, don't take a purse or sandals or anything. He said, just take your vulnerable self. Divest yourself of your resources. Realize that when you go into these communities and serve, you're not just changing the community, but you're being changed by the community. There's a phrase that Pastor Rick Adamago always says to our congregation that I absolutely love. He says, listen, when we go to the city, just know one thing. Don't just ask how you can go into the city and change and transform it. Also ask how the city can change and transform you. Because it's when you engage other people and other ethnic groups. It's when you decide that you want to live upside down and you start to engage people that are different than you. Yes, it starts to confront your biases, your assumptions about life, your ideals, and you become a more human person. To come with nothing but you is important. Because it frees you from your, 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 my messianic complex. That we do all the saving. That was the problem with colonialism. That's the problem with Western Eurocentric missionary work overseas. That's the reason why we as Christians got a horrible name globally. It's because three things that we've not been freed from. The first one is omniscience, which means we know everything and we're going to go minister to those know-nothings. We're going to teach them the Bible and they got nothing to contribute to me. So one of the first things I believe the American church needs to get delivered of when it goes out and does missions is this sense of omniscience. We know everything. Y'all know nothing. We're going to teach you what you're going to teach us. The other thing that the American church needs to get delivered from is omnipotence. We got all the power. You don't. So we get to control the relationship. And this here says, if you're going to live in Jesus' kind of mission, he says, you got to get rid of your tunic. You got to get rid of your, your, your sandals. You got to get rid of, you got to divest yourself. You come vulnerable. You come like a lamb. That's a weird way to do a mission. Don't send money, send you with nothing. The other thing that the American church, which I happen to be a part of, is omnipresence, not realizing that how dominant culture shows up in space has a certain level of impact on the people it serves. 
So how many of you guys want to be in step with Jesus and live in kingdom and be upside down? Beautiful. Four of us. All right. (laughs) Praise God. (laughs) Hmm. I have a friend who was just telling me he's wrestling with going back to college to get his doctorate. He's Native American, and he said, my struggle with going back to get my doctorate, he says, I want to work on the reservations. And he says, I feel like if I get my doctorate, that's just going to create more and more distance between the people I'm trying to serve. That's a different way of thinking. Listen, mission is to be in need. Listen, Luke doubles down on this thing. Verse 5, he says, when you enter a house, first say peace to this house. Now, what's missing here? He says, when you enter a house, first say peace to this house. What's missing here? An invitation. (laughs) Ain't no invitation here. But here's the question. Why would somebody be inviting you into your house? Well, think about what Jesus is trying to tell us. Think about how the church is coming into, think about how these two people are coming into a city. They're broke. They don't have resources. They look needy. They are being loved and shown hospitality to than the other way around. Can you imagine a church coming with nothing? Can you imagine a church plant with nothing? I was just talking to a guy um, who, who uh, like, he was like, man, I can't do this big American church thing anymore. And he says, I want to plant, but I want to do everything different. And he goes, but this organization wants to give me $250,000 to go plant something different. And I said, don't you take that money. I said, are you working bivocationally? He goes, absolutely, I'm working bivocationally. I said, then go plant the church with absolutely nothing. Be different. Go upside down. Flip the American way of consumerism in terms of church on its head and do something different in your community. He said, I'll think about it. (laughs) I ain't mad at him. Some hard stuff. Man, it's not the inviting that you do. It's the fact that you're being invited in because the church is in need. In an environment where it's about meeting needs. Imagine living out this kind of Christianity. How much time I got left? Where's my clock? Oh, okay. Seven minutes. Let's finish. Verse 5 through 7. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house, but if someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking, and whatever you give, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. It says, if someone promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. 
The Hebrew and Aramaic word for peace is shalom. What does peace imply? Peace implies removing a barrier. But notice where all this activity is happening. It's happening in a home. And it's not the deify meeting in a home. The point is, is that this work is being done relationally. Right? Like peace is happening because relationships are happening. Think about it right here. It says, Verse 7, stay there eating and drinking and whatever you give for the workers deserves his wages. Thinking about that, eating and drinking. Remember, we said earlier that Jesus and his disciples are leaving Galilee and they're on their way to Jerusalem and they got to go through Samaria, right? And most Jews uh, would not eat this kind of food. You, you know what I'm saying? Like there were laws, ceremonial laws that you participated in. So you didn't eat everything that a Samaritan served you. And Jesus is saying, you got to eat it. <laughs> Barriers are being removed relationally, right? Because they're eating from a table they're forbidden to eat from. But that can't happen unless relationships are happening. Notice how the gospel is going for. It's not gimmicky at all. I know we have, I grew up in an era in the 80s where there was all kind of evangelism explosion and two kits and chick tracks and there was all these formulas, right? The Roman road and there was all these formulas about how to run people for Jesus. But the beautiful piece of this story when I read it is about finding that person a peace, going into their house, building a relationship. And that's how the kingdom of God breaks in. It's not gimmicky at all. The kingdom of God breaks into your life as a mom and as a single person, as a teacher and as a barista and as a cook and as a business person in a lot of different ways. It's not gimmicky. There's no one size fits all to this kind of mission that Jesus is calling you here in Ben to live in. I'm sweating and my glasses are sliding. Are you with me? And it's entering into these homes and building these relationships and finding people a peace because those relationships are happening is key to removing those barriers, being able to eat at their table. Now, this was really illustrated for me as a black kid who grew up in South Central L.A., Inglewood to be exact. I'm not a Christian. At 19, I come to Oregon State. I know nothing about Jesus. I was not raised in a home a Christian home, but I come to Oregon State. My teammate at the time was a guy named A.C. Green. He was a senior. I was a freshman. The first day I got to campus, I was walking through the MU Commons, which is where everybody kind of hangs out, and the bookstore is right by the Commons, and there's A.C. Green at that time, six foot ten with a big jerry curl, a McDonald All-American, open-air preaching against pornography being sold into the bookstore. It was such, had such an impact on my life that later on I end up, because of his influence, coming to Jesus. And the first thing he encouraged me to do is to have a guy named Doug Schroeder from Gold Beach, Oregon, be my roommate. So 
me and Doug became roommates because AC felt that our relationship is necessary for both of our growth and we would be transformed. Doug, a white guy who led the Republican debate team at Go Beach High School. <laughs> Eric Knox, right, whose, whose grandparents were part of the Socialist Party at New York University. And God puts both of us in an apartment together for three years. And Doug, it was interesting, the first day I pulled up to the apartment, we had two parking spots. He had a convertible, I forget what it was. It was a Ferrero or something like that. And the top was down, and he had the keys in the ignition while he was in the apartment. I took the keys, I went up, I said, yo, man, you can't leave your keys in ignition. He goes, why? And I realized he was from Gold Beach, and I was from South Central L.A. There was a lot of reasons why we didn't leave our keys in the ignition. But man, we did life together. We argued together. We got inches from each other, arguing over massive stuff, politically, socially, racially, culturally. There was conflicts in our house, our apartment. That's my dude. To this day, Doug, Schroeder changed my life. Because I know him. And you can't hate what you don't know. You hate someone politically? You hate Kaepernick? Because you don't know Kaepernick. That's an easy target to hate. You hate Black Lives Matter. You hate all these things that you know nothing about. But the moment you step into a relationship with someone rocking a BLM shirt and that becomes your brother and sister, it, it's hard to hate them when you know them. And the kingdom of God is beautiful because it allows us to live upside down and do life together and know each other in a way that the culture doesn't. And it ain't gimmicky how we do relationship. But that assumes you got to find a person of peace. That's all. And build a relationship with that person. And you never know what that person of peace does. They can network you. They can resource you. They can even finance you. But you got to be in pursuit. That word find, it's about getting out there, doing it, living in mission with Jesus. In closing, oops, I'm past my time. I'm going to keep going, though. I'm past white people time. But I'm not past black people time. So I'm going to be on black people talk. <laughs> All right. Y'all with me? Yeah. All right. How many of you guys will give me three more minutes? Show of hands. Let's see. 
There we go. Three, six, nine, 12, 15. I got a lot of minutes. All right, here we go. When you enter a town and you're welcome, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as warning to you. Yet be sure of this. The kingdom of God has come near you. I tell you, it'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than that town. I'm going to try and read this. It's going to be hard. When you enter a town and are welcome, that's how you know the kingdom of God is present. You're welcome. Man, people need help. Families need help. Schools need help. Marriages need help. Single people need help. The church needs help. You need help. We need help. I need help. I am transformed because I'm participating with Jesus' mission of transforming others. The kingdom of God is breaking in when you're welcome. You hear me? I hear that. I'm not going to go all into this. But Ben welcomes you. Your neighbor welcomes you. There are communities you have not connected with that welcome you. I coach basketball. And when I took that job, I gathered a group of 10 black girls, and we played in a tournament, and we had two games. And between the first game and the second game, after about two months, I said, how come I never see your dads here? And almost 80% of that group kids I had gave stories of dads incarcerated. And God spoke to me and he said, I called you to this space, even though you are absolutely ill-equipped to speak to black women issues in a deep way. But I called you to simply be a unicorn and just show up and show them what a black dad looks like. And I want you just to care for him. And some of these young girls, you're going to be fatherly to. And yet some of these girls, you're going to be fathering to. And it ain't going to make sense. And you ain't going to have a magic bullet to deliver them. But you're going to show up and be present. And they're going to welcome you. And I have, for the last five years, been on the ride of my life.
at 52 in a very strange way, I've become cool. When I was in my 20s and 30s as a youth pastor and I was on the campus trying to be cool, I wasn't cool. And they knew that. And now I'm 52 and I don't give a damn, really. And then I became cool. They welcomed me. You ain't got to be anything but yourself. Show up. This city welcomes you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this church, Antioch. God, you want us to show up with nothing but ourselves. You invite us into this kingdom that you call us. And there's always the temptation to bid farewell one last time to our family. Or to go bury the dead. Jesus said, I, you're not fit for the kingdom of God if you're hanging on to stuff. I want to strip you of you to reimagine what you could be like as you live into the kingdom and live into these spaces to turn your world absolutely upside down to be the difference here in this city. Would you do this work today? I pray all this in Jesus' name.